0: so, friends, very happy to offer this talk tonight. Very grateful to be here with you. And this is the last of four talks on liberation, doorways to liberation, that I'll offer, that I've had the honor of offering. And tonight I'd like to talk about the practice of metta as a doorway to liberation, and include also the Brahma-viharas, all of the Brahma-viharas, as doorways to freedom. And so I'll explore tonight how metta partners with mindfulness in a liberation to support liberation. I'll offer some suggestions for the abiding practice in metta, which I love and which is very, very creative. And then I'll close with some going home stories to honor those of us who are going home soon, whose retreat may be um, coming to a close in the next few days. And also coming home. They can be used as coming home stories for those who are staying on retreat. And so metta, a translation, I I really resonate with friendliness, goodwill, care, connection. And the connection between mindfulness and metta, one way of understanding it is that metta, or kindness, is at the very heart of our mindfulness practice at the very heart of the way that we pay attention. We pay attention with open, kind, curiosity, with the intention of responding wisely to our experience. And this part of paying attention with open, kind, curiosity, there's kindness built right in there, or open, we could say open, sometimes we say non-judgmental, but of course we're doing it in order to discern wisely. But in that moment of seeing mindfully, we are suspending reactivity. Being for or against what's here. And this is a wonderful way of understanding metta. This deep befriending. I often think of it as kitchen table metta with my friends you know I might be at the kitchen table chatting late in the night maybe over a cup of tea and i might have something heavy on my heart to share with that friend and i know that that friend is not going to judge me not going to give me advice not going to tell me what to do unless i ask for some guidance but i know that their deep listening is what is transformative. They might not fix it, but the sharing of it with someone who can hold it in caring attention is powerful. And this is what we offer our own selves as we pay attention to our experience with mindfulness and metta. I like how Christina Feldman describes this. Mindfulness helps us turn towards what's here. Metta helps us sit beside it. And we can see this connection in the metta chant, or the metta sutta. I'm going to read part of it. And this... I was speaking with Bhante Buddha Rakita about this chant once, this sutta once, and he said that, in this sutta, mindfulness and metta shake hands. They're shaking hands. I like to think they're holding hands. Or, you know, they are together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. When this sutta says, sustain this recollection, it's, the translation of recollection is from the word sati. So, sustain this sati sustain this mindfulness, this recollection, this this mindfulness, and the sati, the mindfulness that we're invited to sustain is the mindfulness of kindness, should sustain this recollection of kindness. This mindfulness of kindness. And then the sublime abiding is the abiding in freedom in liberation, in awakening, the uprooting of greed, aversion, and delusion. And this is pointed to in the suttas by freed from hatred and ill will, and contented and easily satisfied. This is the freedom from wanting, freedom from grasping, freedom from craving, and then freedom from aversion, these two sides of clinging. And we can taste these even in small ways. In our practice and in our lives. We can taste this little freedom. And so those are two reasons that metta is a goal, partners with, liber- with mindfulness to be a liberation practice. And the third reason is that metta connects us with our interconnection. Connects us with our connection to others because we're giving, we're connected, we're thinking of them. We're, and it, so it supports us to lose a little bit of the tightness around our separate self, our separate solid self. And so these are the reasons that metta is such a beautiful partner in liberation. I want to share a story of this, a retreat story of this. As we can, of course, feel aversion in so many different ways, and often towards ourselves, and self-judgment. And uh, so I want to share a little story about how I worked with self-judgment with this practice. And I was at IMS. I might have been here, but I was at IMS. And just self-judgment was coming up a lot. And so I began a practice that combined mindfulness and meta. And every time self-judgment came up, I would mindfully note, "Oh, this is this is self-judgment." And then I would offer this little phrase: "May I be free of self-judgment?" And I would touch the heart, that my heart and stop whatever I was doing, just touch the heart. Oh, sweetheart, this is judgment, self-judgment. May I be free of self-judgment. So metta and mindfulness were (coughs) partners there. And I want to clarify that the tone of voice that I used the may I be free phrase with wasn't may I be free (laughs) of this. where. Self-judgment. May I be free of this self-judgment. So like, oh, may I be free, sweetheart. So it was a like freely offered wish. And over about ten days, nothing seemed to change. Self-judgment continued to rise very often. But I began to notice that right in the midst of the self-judgment, when I said, may I be free, and I touched my heart, There was a tiny moment where there was non-aversion. There was non-ill will. And there was generosity towards myself, this tiny moment. When I had stopped trying to change the self-judgment. I had stopped trying to stop it. I was just mindful and kind. But nothing really seemed to be happening. And then one day, I walked into the dining room. And in those years, in those days, it's quite a while ago now, they had pickled beets, which I noticed they still have here at the Forest Refuge. And so I I filled my plate, and I put some pickled beets on, which I really love, and I was walking back to my... walking to find a spot to sit down and in the middle of the dining hall i tripped and li- i fell f- fell forward and my food started to slide off the plate and i could see the trajectory of the pickled beets i could see whose lap they were going to fall in land in and so I, I'm sh- still not sure how I did this, but I somehow got my plate under the beats that were flying off and caught the whole, the full meal deal. I caught it in kind of, kind of almost midair, air And it landed, you know, back on the plate. And I was standing there in the hall. And the first thing that rose was, good catch! Second thing that rose Everybody saw you. Everybody's gonna remember you. Now. Third thought that rose, I just laughed inside. I didn't laugh out loud. Laughed inside, and the thought that rose was, Oh my gosh, what would I do without you? Endlessly entertaining. Meaning the judgment thought that had risen secondly. There was just complete freedom around the judgment thought, And I learned in that moment that judgments will rise. They're conditioned. But I could have a different relationship to them. And that moment has become a touchstone moment for me. Now whenever I look at the pickled beets, (laughs) I remember that moment of freedom. And uh, self-judgment still rises. But it's not the same. I know, I know more about it now. Of course, you know, when I do something new, or something like tripping in the hall, you know, self-judgment is going to rise. But it's not the same. And so this profound practice of mindfulness and metta has deep, deep freedom Potential. I'd like to offer some ways of practicing the abiding practice. And many of us have, uh, probably have an abiding practice, but not not everyone, I think. And I think we often work with the phrases... Uh, which are beautiful practice, and I love the phrase practice. It comes from the Vasudhi the 5th century uh, work of Ajahn Buddhaghosa. And the abiding practice is an earlier practice, a sutta practice, that is said to be the practice of the Buddha. And so I'd like to read the, that sutta, This is uh, Majjhima Nikaya 43. There's, this appears in many suttas, but this is the one I have here. N- um, and what householder is the immeasurable deliverance of mind? What, what we mean by this is similar to the sublime abiding. The immeasurable deliverance of mind, a way of describing awakening, freedom, liberation. And when, we say it, when it says here immeasurable, what that can mean, if this is, if we have like a... the kind of awakening that is complete, then we abide in immeasurable qualities like the Brahmaviharas. As, uh, we abide there, con- consistently. And when we have a more temporary taste, of this immeasurability. It's a temporary taste, but it's immeasurable in that moment. Like that moment when I caught the beads, I wasn't completely free, but in that moment that freedom felt so spacious, so boundless. And it stayed with me ever since. So we can have these Moments that feel immeasurable. Okay, so, and what householder is the immeasurable deliverance of mind? Here, a practitioner abides, pervading one quarter of... So one quarter and looking, going to the side, the back, up, down. Here a practitioner abides, pervading one quarter, with a mind imbued with kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, around, and everywhere, to all as to themselves, they abide, pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. This is called the immeasurable deliverance of mind. And so, the three reasons, or the three ways that metta supports liberation are included in this sutta also. It's a giving, so we're, we're eroding grasping because we're wishing this to others, to the whole world. This erodes uh, hostility, you know, the line without hostility, without ill will. We're cultivating goodwill. And this connection to a larger sense of belonging in a way, a larger sense of community, we're offering and connecting to sense of something larger than ourselves. And so I'd like to describe how I practice with the abiding practice. What does that mean to abide? And there are five steps. Oh, before I say that, the abiding practice um, is one where we abide in the qualities of kindness, or it could be abiding in any of the Brahmaviharas. The sutta that I read, abiding in kindness, is repeated for each of the other Brahmaviharas. So we can abide, um, hang out in a way we can say, with the qualities of kindness, joy compassion, or equanimity. And when we hang out like that or abide in the qualities, it's not that we are going, it, um, going to deny other things that are here. But kindness can be present even when other things are present, even difficulties. And so we're allowing those wholesome qualities to, in a way, support the mind to be with everything else with friendliness in the midst of things. And so there are two ways we can abide. One is when the qualities are present, when they rise, we can just notice them and hang out as long as they last. We can be without clinging, we just notice, oh, what's this like in the body and the mind? And as we do that, we, and we, we let them grow by paying attention, my wise mindfulness, and also anchor them in a way in our mind and heart. Oh, this is what it feels like. We help our being get familiar with what it feels like. So we kind of support our mind to know it more fully and recognize it more easily. Second way we can do it is to call it up. Call it up intentionally. And so this is what I'd like to offer my five steps with, calling it up. So the first one is to find your easiest doorway to care, connection, friendliness, goodwill. Your easiest doorway. And so I'm going to offer a number of them here. The first doorway can be intention, just the intention to offer kindness. And, this is an important one, because intention sometimes feels quite neutral. And there can be a kind of a expectation about metta, that it feel a certain way. That we feel warm. We feel friendly. And that can kind of sometimes get in the way. We can have too much of an expectation around that. Intention, if we simply have the intention to offer metta, the way I did, for example, in the early part of the practice I described when I was offering, oh, this is self-judgment, may I be kind. It was very neutral. I didn't feel a warm, fuzzy feeling. And yet I kept doing it. That's the powerful part the intention is the powerful part not how we feel or not how it feels so if we feel metta is quite neutral we just keep offering it and that's powerful so that's important to know so intention can be an easy doorway we just keep turning keep turning kind of like if we have a friend and you know we, we know we're going we're loyal <laughs> we're loyal we're steadfast. It doesn't always feel warm and fuzzy. So that can be a doorway for you. And now I'll list another a number of other doorways and see if any of these resonate for you. Very often an easy doorway for us is a person that we care about. Or a person who's who we appreciate. And so see if there's a person like that for you. For me it's a Dalai Lama. When I see his face, like right now, I f- see it and see that big grin he often has, I just feel, my heart just just lifts. And so the heart just lifts. And that, that's a flavor of metta. There's a little bit of connection there, a little bit of appreciation. You'll have your own flavors. Kuan Yin, Mother Teresa, a teacher you know or you don't know could be uh, an easy doorway for you. Uh, someone that you know would see your goodness. Someone who appreciates you. An elder, an ancestor. Or it could be someone, that you, someone that's not a teacher that, or a guide in that way, it could be the neighbor who appreciates that you water their plants. This, this person you have a connection with. Could be a friend, could be a, a cousin, could be a family member could be um, anyone that you feel a little uplift for, a little appreciation, a little connection. It can be very subtle. It's another thing about it. It doesn't have to be big. So it could also, I'm going to name a number, otherwise it could be a pet. Your pet or the neighbor's pet. Or a friend's pet. Well, that, a little, oh yeah, that little I have a neighbor actually. I have a neighbor across the street. And she has a little dog. And that little dog loves me. And when that little dog runs out the front door, <coughs> it runs to the front of the fence and looks at my house. <laughs> it's like, I swear. And she says the same thing, looks at my house. Is Jeannie gonna come out with us for a walk? Sometimes I do, and then they get really the little dog gets really excited, but can you see what's happening for me as I'm talking about that dog I've got some I've got some uplift, so it could be a pet could be um noticing that you can settle back and receive the breath. there's a sense of could be a sense of connection and ease there that could be your doorway into kindness, friendliness, softness, gentleness, care, connection. So that could be that physical settling back. It could be a gentle touch. We often talk about phrases in metta, images in metta, but touch is a really big doorway for metta. Could be a gentle touch. Let's ex- just have an experiment with this, just right now. Wherever your hands are lying, however they're lying, don't move them. Just give a little gentle squeeze. A little pressure, an extra pressure. That can be a very soft way of giving yourself some metta And we know there's so much research on the benefit of caring touch. So we can offer this to ourselves. We often say, you know, "hand on the heart." but this way, if we just give a little squeeze, no one even knows we're offering meta to ourselves. I asked a, a, fo- a grade four once. I was, I was in an elementary school teaching, and I was with every grade for 15 minutes all day, <laughs> for the whole day, for eight weeks. And um, at one point I asked a grade four boy, how do you show kindness to yourself? And he said, I put my hands on my desk in front of me, like I fold them on the desk in front of me, and then I, I can rub my belly, and no one can see that I'm doing it. That was his way of offering to himself. So sweet. Or if you've got your arms folded, your, your arms folded, you can put your one hand under your left armpit. And that's really close to the vagus nerve, which helps to settle the nervous system. And so that's a very nice way to offer yourself a kind touch. And then you can just stand there in the grocery store with your arms folded. No one needs to know. <laughs> I was also working with a yogi once a few years ago and talking about the importance of softness and touch. And she, um, in IMS, went and found a place where there was some carpet, some soft carpet, took off her shoes and walked on this carpet and every step she'd say, soft, soft, soft. And that just softened her whole body. saw, Soft. Or the way, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, invites us to walk on the earth as if the feet are kissing the earth. Beautiful walking practice of kindness and connection and mindfulness. And I used to... Um, I used to... Actually, before that, one teacher told me that her uh, easiest doorway when she started was her stuffy. And so, like her little small teddy bear. I didn't have a stuffy, but I was having a hard time on retreat. So I put my I put a pair of socks in my pocket. And then whenever I just would like a little bit of metta I put my hand in my pocket. And it curled itself around the socks like I was holding a little baby bird, or something like that. And that softness just softened my whole body. That was my easy doorway. I shared this with another friend, and that, that friend gave me a little goose stuffy. So then I could put the little goose in my pocket, and then I could curl my hand around a real kind of bird, little bird. just invited that relationship. Or you can offer yourself an endearing name, sweetheart, honey, whatever supports you, helps you touch gentleness in a small way. Or you can have an image. I have this image I shared a couple weeks ago of a porcupine wrapped up in a blanket. And so, if there is something prickly, I wrap it up in the blanket of metta and then I can hold it more easily. So that image of the porcupine is helpful for me, wrapped up in a blanket. A Couple more. Um, a place in nature can be our doorway. And, or a being in nature, a particular tree that you love the squirrels that run around the forest refuge. And it can be the memory of a nature place. A couple of weeks ago, I invited everyone to remember a place in nature that you love. We could do it again right now. It just takes a moment. Just remember... Imagine your yourself in that nature place or remember it from today if it's here. What happens in your body, in your heart? What rises? I remember the lake, and I remember the smell, and I have this moment of uplift, and then this moment of calmness. We had words like that a couple weeks ago. Or I offered words like that, I should say. And then we abide there, we hang out there. One last one. Doorway... um, is that we can have a memory of an experience when we felt metta, a time when we felt kindness. Just remembering it won't bring it back in the same clarity, but it can bring back a flavor of it, and then we can know the sensations. So that's the first step, is to find an easy doorway. The second step is then to feel what it feels like in the body and the mind when you connect with that easy doorway. So, with intention, if that's your doorway, it could feel steady, solid. There's a there's a, a kind of a, a a way of being aligned with your highest you know intention and purpose. It feels good. Mm, c- connect with that. And the the other doorways, whatever whichever doorway speaks to you, then notice what sensations, what feelings do they d- rise in your in your body, your mind, or your heart. And these can be very subtle. A sense of ease, a small sense of uplift, a small sense of relaxation, a small sense of connection. So we want to know them in the mind, in the heart, in the body. The third step, then, is to let go of the image. Let go of the easy doorway. The fourth and let it go in the background. And then the fourth step is to continue to abide in the sensations, just in the body, in the present moment. They'll still be here even if just for a breath or a half a breath. And then the fifth step is, as is helpful, you just refresh the easy doorway. Turn again to the easy doorway. Feel again and repeat, repeat the process. Feel again the sensations. That's a lot of words, so let's just have one more little experiment. I'm just thinking of my gratitude for the Sangha here. And I just feel a quiet little gratitude in the heart. And then I let the Sangha image go, and I'm just with the little gratitude in the heart. This is the abiding practice. So friends, I want to offer three stories for going home that can incorporate the Brahma-Vihara practices as liberation practices. And so the first story for going home or for coming home can be used right here to come home to helpful qualities, to come home to this place of freedom, is the rose apple tree story. And this follows very closely on what we just did with nature. Because when the Buddha was close to, well, he had been practicing very hard ascetic practices for six years, and he was near death. And he had a memory of a time, when he was a young boy, under the rose apple tree. His father was working in the field nearby. He was sitting underneath this rose apple tree. And it was a memory of a time he just felt... He was in a state of, you know, kind of settledness. And in the rose apple tree memory, he just remembered how peaceful he felt, how connected he felt. He felt connected to all the beings, even the the earthworms in the field and a sense of peace, and oneness. And he realized, oh, it doesn't have to be so hard. And that's what helped him to stop trying so hard, and find the middle way, and find the the way of, of liberation. This memory, this rose apple tree experience. And uh, connected with the joy. He said, I don't have to be afraid of that joy. I don't have to be afraid of the pleasantness of that peace. And so this Brahma Vihara of joy that he befriended, that he connected with and that supported him, supported him in liberation. And so on retreat here, you may have experienced some small moments where you had an understanding. You might have had a different sense of, oh, a different relationship to something. Like, like maybe doubt. Oh, oh, there's a different way to see this that I hadn't seen before. It might not even have dispelled everything. But that different relationship could be a moment of touchstone experience for you. Rose apple tree experience that you can remember when you're uh, back home or later on in retreat. We can call these memories up and say, there is something there that's really helpful. So, rose apple tree. We can call on moments, experiences that were helpful, that were quietly joyful, that were pleasant, that were touchstone experiences and let them help us in the present moment. The second going home story I want to offer is an equanimity story. And this is a story of something, again, that was very, uh, kind of a, um, we have have, um, wonderful indigenous elders back at my home and This is a story about Chief DeLorem, who was the chief, was the former chief of Cowasis First Nation. And on that nation, that was one of the nations in Canada, where in 2000 and about three years ago, there were findings at a residential school, a former residential school, of unmarked graves beside this residential school. And it was quite, it was, I mean, it was a big, very big, challenging experience. The indigenous people, of course, had known that those were there, those graves were there. But still it was very challenging to kind of call these memories and experiences back of the residential school challenge, trauma. And it was also a shock for the non-Indigenous community, allies, who might not have been aware of this situation. And I'll never forget Chief Delorme. He said, he was speaking with such equanimity in the midst of that. And he called on all Canadians to be equanimous with them in the midst of it, with the community. He said, I want to call on all Canadians to stand with us in the midst of this. With us in the midst of this challenge. With us in the midst of this pain. And he gave us all a gift. He transmitted his own equanimity to all of us. And so now I call on that memory as a way of calling on equanimity in the midst of things. And then I'd like to close with a story. This is a bit of a longer story. This is a sacred story to me. But aren't all of our stories sacred? A sacred for me means stories that connect us to something larger than ourselves. And so this last story is a story of compassion and how compassion and mindfulness can liberate, free the mind, and bring us home. And this is a story that I sit with most times when I sit on the cushion. I knew, I had a, the privilege of mm, working, knowing knowing a, a Métis elder named Jim Satie. And Jim knew me as a baby and worked with my father. They were wardens in a national park, Prince Albert National Park, where I was born. And We lived for a few years before our family moved away. And at that time, when I was a baby, Jim Satie had taken my dad under his wing. My dad was also Métis. (coughs) And Jim took dad under his wing and really taught him a lot about the land and the lakes and taught him a lot about... um, Well, the land and the lakes, I'd say. Dad already was uh, really connected to the land. But um, Jim Satie was known as a historian, as an elder, as a community builder, as a storyteller, as a, a community counselor, and as a tracker, renowned as a tracker. And my dad was also a tracker. But Jim was understood or known as the best tracker across the whole treaty, Six Territory, which is where we're from. And my dad told me a story as I was growing up that one day a young boy was lost in the park. And Jim was on days off. So the park called my dad. And when people were lost in the park like that, the park... Um, would always call the Métis and First Nation trackers that worked for the park. They would call them and they would look for the person who was lost. So on this day they called my dad and other trackers and um, dad said they could usually find somebody in about an hour because they knew the land really well. And they, that was their life. But dad said on this day they couldn't find that boy. And they looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they had to leave that boy in the bush all night by himself. The next day they started looking again for that boy. And they looked, and they looked. And again they couldn't find that boy. They had to leave him again all night in the bush by himself. And the next morning, they started to look for that boy again. Dad said they started before it was light. And they looked and they looked. And about noon, Dad said they were getting desperate because they didn't know if that boy could survive another night in the bush. And so at that point, Dad said, we have to call Jim. And Jim, they they went to Jim's home. He lived at the Métis, Fish Lake Métis settlement. They didn't have phones, so they had to go directly to his home. And they said, Jim, can you come? And Jim said, yes. And he came, and he said to my dad, show me where that boy was last seen. And dad showed him where that boy was last seen. And dad said he stood there in that spot for two or three minutes. Really quiet. Didn't say anything. And the whole, all the search team all around him got really quiet also. And of course the ground, you know, was all trampled up because the search team had been there for three days already. Everybody got really quiet. And then after two, three minutes, Dad said, Jim took off walking real fast into the bush. Dad followed. He said that Jim walked for two hours straight, really fast, tracked over six miles of muskeg. Dad said he never stopped. And then he did stop. And Dad said that boy was right there in front of him. And he found him alive. And Dad said, no, no one really knew how he did that. Not even the trackers that were there that day. And I grew up on that story. Our family moved away from the park soon after Jim's family moved away, but I grew up knowing Jim Satee through that story. And so when I met Jim Satee, and I always wondered how did he find that boy? And when I met Jim Satee as an adult, I was about twenty five, and he came to do a talk on First Nation and Metis history in my hometown in the park and I felt I, I went to see him speak and I felt like I was meeting a le- was going to see a legend out of a storybook and I went up to him afterwards and I put my hand out to him I, and I still remember how soft both of his hands were around mine he took my one hand in both of his hands so soft and I said Mr. Sati you won't remember me but I'm one of Andy and Dorothy's daughters. And, and then that's when he took my hand, and he looked at me with a little twinkle in his eye. and he said, "Are you Jeannie?" No, he didn't say it like that. He did, it wasn't a question. He said, "Are you genie?" <laughs> I said, "Yes, I am." He said, "I remember you. I remember you sleeping in a basket on the porch of your parents' cabin. And we were all working around, and you just slept and slept and slept. And in that moment I knew why so many people loved him. And I began to visit him at his home. And eventually I, one day I said, Mr. Sati, how did you find that boy? And he said something to me that has become a lifelong teaching. And is what I sit with every day on the cushion. And is, for me, the teaching that brought me to this practice. For me, the teaching that describes the heart of our practice. And is a profound coming together of mindfulness and compassion to bring us home. What he said was, when I look for any lost person, I put myself into the mind of the person who's lost. And then I said, what did you do when you found that boy? And he said, that boy was paralyzed with fear and he couldn't talk. He couldn't walk. And I just sat down beside him. Quietly, he said, for about half an hour. And then that boy could come back inside himself. And then we walked out of the bush together. We walked home together. And friends, when I feel we have a a saying about the bush, you know, if you're lost, you can develop bush panic. You start getting anxious and walking faster and trying harder to find your way back and you can get lost and more lost. And for me, this is a way of understanding when I get lost in reactivity, when I get lost in judgment, when I get lost in aversion. I get tighter and tighter and I struggle and struggle and get lost and more lost. And if in that moment I can put myself in my own mind and find myself i very often find myself paralyzed with fear of some sort under under a tree <laughs> you know in a some state stuck paralyzed in some state and in that moment so the mindfulness can help me find myself pick up my trail more easily and then i remember jim just sat with that boy in kindness he didn't say, get up, time to go, come on, let's get going, gotta go, come, come, let's go. No. And so when I find myself there, if I can sit with myself in kindness and compassion until I can come back inside myself, then in a way, in that moment, I'm home right then. there are so many ways of understanding this story, or so many things to see in this story. Sometimes I relate to Jim as mindfulness. You know, we have a saying that mindfulness always remembers you when you turn to it. It's always there for you. With mindfulness, I remember you. Sometimes I recognize, recognize myself in the searchers. They're doing, 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 but nothing seems to be no fruit. <laughs> Sometimes I'm in the lost boy. Sometimes I'm in the wisdom of Jim. Sometimes I see Jim as wisdom and compassion. And I can call on those inside myself. Sometimes I see Jim as the qualities of my own self that we cultivate on retreat. All of the qualities that we take with us, that we take home with us, go with us. sometimes I see the process of mindfulness and compassion coming together in a liberating way, in a homecoming way. And this process, of course, we take with us too. And so all the fruits and the gifts of the practice are for me in this story and the way, the process, the path is in this story. And this abides in our hearts, wherever we are. And so I offer that as a a going home story or a coming home story for those who are staying on retreat. I'm just really right now with the gratitude for Jim, gratitude for all of our ancestors. Gratitude for wisdom that, that abides in our hearts. Gratitude for the Brahmaviharas, mindfulness that can liberate the heart, help the heart come home, to its true nature, to its true home, to its divine abode to the immeasurable. ever present really, that we can call on at any time. Qualities of mindfulness and compassion, kindness, equanimity, that can really just lead us right home. Thank you very much, friends for receiving this story. Thank you very much for your practice. For the mindfulness and compassion, kindness that abides as wisdom in each of our hearts. They're our true home. Thank you. Let's just settle just for a minute together. Let's chant, friends. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.